Welcome to the Consider This Podcast. For even more exciting content, visit our website at considerthiswbc.com. Enjoy the podcast. It's good to see you. Uh, and also, those of you that are online, glad that you're here. We're, we're ramping something back up, something that we had done uh, before COVID, and we would take some difficult topics, we would put them on the table, and, and just think through it and talk through it. Uh, we've had some incredible guests in the past. Right before COVID hit, we had Dr. Craig Evans here, uh, and he was just absolutely awesome. And so just to give you an idea of, of some of the places that we're going to take this is sometimes it'll be me, kind of like tonight, uh, but there'll be other times that it won't be me. Instead, we have some possibilities where uh, some friends of mine that are scholars that are literally around the world will be joining us from their office. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to put them right up there. And so I'll be on the stage and I'll be having a conversation with them and you'll see them from their office, whether it's Atlanta, Georgia, or somewhere in Kentucky, or maybe somewhere else. Uh, and you're going to get a chance, one, just to kind of hear their story, how it is that they came to faith in Jesus. Uh, but also, we're going to go for it and talk about uh, some things that are intriguing. So, for example, one of the people that I'm talking with right now about joining us um, has uh, a newer book out on modern day miracle reports and whether or not we can trust those reports. You know, sometimes people do lie. And so the question would be, well, when can we trust a report versus when should we be skeptical about it? And what are the reports that are out there? What are the kinds of miracle reports that are going on out there right now. So you'd get to hear from somebody like him. I visited with Mike Lacona. Um, Mike is one of the top scholars in the world on the resurrection of Jesus. And he was like, oh man, I'd be glad to come and join the crew. And so one of the cool things is, is you, get to, you get to interact with some of the brightest minds that are out there dealing with some of the most difficult topics that are out there and you get to talk to them. Maybe there's a question that you've got. Well, if they're here, good news, ask it, because they're happy for you to do it. That's what they want to do. They want to help you. Uh, tonight, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that uh, over the years, I've gone and sat down with people, some of, the, some of the people that are more part of the skeptical community here in Kingwood that I'm a part of. I've been invited to be a part of some conversations with them. And we get down kind of to brass tacks. And what I mean by that is there are some, some arguments that people make for the existence of God uh, that we can kind of go back and forth on. You know, for example, cosmological arguments for the existence of God. Uh, and you think, well, you know, when it comes to my life, uh, I can kind of avoid that one, right? Uh, but there are other things that, frankly, you just can't. Uh, that when you're asking people certain questions, uh, it's, it's unavoidable including the question that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is, what is it that really makes for the good life? Or more importantly, or another way of rephrasing it is, so what does it mean to have a meaningful life? In my conversations with my friends, and especially those that don't believe that God exists, this takes on a pretty unique shape. Because for me, I'm asking them the question, if God doesn't exist, where could meaning possibly come from? And as we sit in Starbucks, or as I like to call it, four bucks, uh, we, we hear the possibilities on where it is that they would answer that question. And those conversations are really fascinating to me. Again, this isn't a question that you can avoid because theoretically you can say, well, it's just not something I'm going to answer. But as I tell my friends, oh, you will by the way that you live tomorrow. Now, that being said, to be fair, we've been in a pandemic for, oh, you know, like a year and a half or so. It's really been great fun. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I've put some parameters on it, and at January, I've said, enough's enough, and it's over. So look forward to that. Uh, but with the, uh, you know, with, with the pandemic and with all of the confusion that people have gone through, people have been asking this question quite a lot. So what is it that really does make for a meaningful life? The pandemic also brought up some other interesting theological questions. One that I'm not gonna answer tonight, I'm just gonna tease you with it. So some people thought, this is proof that the end is near. This is proof that everything that's going on in the book of Revelation is true, and it's happening right now in front of us. Even, even upset that I didn't stop a series that I was speaking on in church and didn't immediately start talking about that because that was something that they wanted me to do. 
But I asked them this question, and this is a person that believes in Jesus. So I asked them this question. I said, okay, so you want me to do this series on the end times and basically say that we're living in them right now, which technically speaking, we're always living in them. Every day, we're one day closer. I said, can I ask you this question? What'd you do yesterday? They said, well, I got up and I ate breakfast and spent a little time with my kids. I was like, okay. I had a couple of meetings, so I went and did those. And I was like, okay, what else did you do? And they're like, well, about that time, I, was, I had to go to the grocery store, so I went over to the grocery store, and then I came back to the house, and then it was time to cook dinner, so I cooked dinner, I was like, all right. And then after I cooked dinner, I was like, I was kind of tired at that point, so I just kind of went down and, uh, and watched three episodes of a show that they were watching, and that, I was just ready to go to bed. And I was like, okay. I said, can I ask you a question without beating you up too much? Uh, if we're living in the end times, literally this is it, don't you think yesterday would have been different? I mean, what I, did, what I noticed was you still did everything absolutely the same, even though you believe like any minute now, Jesus is returning. Now, I'm not bringing up that story to beat anybody up. I'm really not. What I'm saying is, is that even people of faith have to give an answer to this question. So what is it that really makes for a meaningful life? It's one thing to say, but I believe that God exists and because God exists, that can give my life meaning and value and purpose. I agree with you on that. What it doesn't mean though, is that you're living a life that is filled with meaning and value and purpose. And so we still, all of us have to answer this question. How many of you are fans of the far side? because I think that cartoon is absolutely hilarious. Uh, there was one that uh, showed a guy and he's looking at a directional map in a mall, right? And as he's kind of peering over it, you would think there's this star and the star would say, you are here, but instead there was a star and it said, why am I here, right? That's the kind of question that a philosopher like me would want to ask. Maybe you want to ask the same question. I mean, after all, humans naturally seek purpose and meaning in life. We just do. From a Christian perspective, the oddity lies not in, you know, just the fact that there is that question, but, and it's not just the fact that we're kind of speculating about it from the corner of a couch. It's that somebody like me that's talking with somebody that doesn't believe in God, we really think that we're getting to the essence of one of the most important questions we could possibly ask. Interestingly, you have a couple of responses from people. Uh, in my skeptical community, my atheistic community, here's what's interesting. They think it's a really important question to ask. But as I go around the area for the most part, most people aren't even thinking about it. And that's what blows my mind even more. So before I start to unpack some things here for you, I wanna get into something that only philosophers would say, and that is to get this thing going, we have to talk about the meaning of meaning. Doesn't that sound like what a philosopher would do? Uh, but I, it's not gonna be that big of a deal. Um, we should specify what we're talking about though when we refer to the meaning of life. What kind of meaning do we mean? Uh, and I think that when we talk about that, when we talk about the meaning of life, we really have three different concepts that we have in mind and William Lane Craig is the one I'm borrowing this from. We're, we're talking about our life that actually has a purpose, our life actually has significance, and our life actually has value. So let's talk about that. First, we wanna know whether our lives have purpose. Well, whether they're directed toward a goal or an end. Uh, a refrigerator, by the way, has a purpose. And its purpose is for keeping things cold. I'm not saying anything difficult there. It's for keeping things cold. But the question then becomes, but do I have a fundamental purpose too? Or another way of saying it, am I for something? That's one question. Here's a second question. We wanna know whether our lives have significance, whether they count for anything as a part of a greater whole. Um, one example I was looking at this week, week and Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, James Anderson was talking about this. Uh, the disciple Thomas, for those of you who have seen it, is portrayed with a single raised finger. Or for those of you that don't know much about Leonardo da Vinci, maybe you've seen the movie City Slickers, you know? One thing, just that one thing. We're interested in the significance of that element of the painting. Why does he have his finger up? We'd like to know, among other things, what it contributes to the painting as a whole. And a similar question arises even about your life and my life. What does my life contribute to the universe as a whole? And what does it count for in the grand scheme of things? That's a second question. Here's a third. 
We want to know whether our lives have any value. Is my life worth living at all? Uh, some philosophers, you know, go back to Albert Camus, and Camus said, really at the end of the day, there's only one question that we need to ask, and it's whether or not I should go kill myself. And the reason that he said that is because he had given some deep thought to his atheism, and he came to the belief that, well, if I really do believe this, then my life doesn't have any value to it, so why not? It became the problem of the meaningless life would show you there's no reason not to end your life. Now, there's no doubt there's more to the idea of the meaning of life. I, I, want you to, I don't want you to, to think not, but this will serve us enough, at least for what we're talking about tonight. A couple of things now, meaning from the outside. There are two ways that a human life could possess meaning. There are two. So when you read all of the literature that's out there, you could basically boil it down to two things. And here's the first. Your life could have meaning bestowed from the outside. Basically, what we would call objective meaning as opposed to subjective meaning. You're not creating this meaning for yourself. This is a meaning that is conferred on you. And in the Christian view, it's kind of easy to see how human life in general and human individual lives in particular would have objective meaning in every sense that I've talked about before. You can see it. Our lives would have a purpose, one defined and revealed by our creator. One of the best summary statements ever formulated comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end, that is our highest purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's about as well as it could possibly be stated. Moreover, our lives would have significance as a part of God's wise and sovereign plan for his creation. You even see this in the creation narrative itself in Genesis. You see God create the man and he says, here's creation, go and exercise dominion over it. That's work. And then he said, here is your wife, there's family. You already see it at play. And as creatures made in the image of God, designed to commune with God and with each other, our lives would have tremendous value. So needless to say, none of this makes any sense on an atheistic view. It just doesn't. There would be no transcendent personal creator to give meaning to our existence. So the question becomes, what else could give objective meaning in our lives? And the answer is, it's kind of hard to see. I mean, if God doesn't exist, what the viable options might be, especially for the atheist. I mean, we don't have, we don't really have space or time here to canvas all of the possibilities, but what it seems is that any meaning from outside would have to come from whatever we credit for our own existence. It gives it to us. It puts it on us, so to speak. The problem, though, is that the modern atheistic story is that humans are the products of naturalistic evolutionary processes, namely cosmic evolution, that is the formation of solar systems over billions of years after some foundational event like the Big Bang, followed by biological evolution, so it starts with physics, and there's the bang, and then it's followed by biological evolution, which is the gradual development of complex life forms from elementary life forms through natural variation and natural selection. That's the story. But what we have to do is we have to leave aside the question of whether this story is scientifically credible, at least for what we're talking about tonight, but to consider whether naturalistic evolutionary processes could in principle give our lives meaning in any of the ways that we've talked about. The reason that this is important, by the way, is because you have a growing group, if you go into Western Europe and over into the United States, that this story has become a just-so story that's more common than it used to be. In fact, just this last year, I think, it was the, I think it was the Barna group, indicated that those that believe in God for the first time in the history of our country are in the minority. That is in the United States. And that's why this topic matters. So at least for um, the atheist, the immediate problem is that evolution, at least as it's conceived, is entirely mindless and undirected. You have to remember that. It's entirely mindless and it's undirected. Evolution has no purpose. It has no end. It has no goal. None. It isn't directed anywhere. Evolution has no plan at all. 
never mind a plan of which we would contribute to a significant part of it. Evolution doesn't make value judgments. It doesn't select one course over another because it's more valuable or more worthy. Evolution thus offers no basis for the meaningfulness of human lives, either as a group or even as an individual. And so from an evolutionary perspective, and I mean specifically atheistic, the existence of Homo sapiens is no more or less meaningful than the existence of moon dust. I'm just making these up now. Moon dust, a lawnmower, or Duke the dog. That's my dog, all right? No, nothing. You're, you're not more valuable. You're not more significant. You're not more meaningful. Now you say, that's kind of a big thing that's a big thing to suggest, and I would agree with you. It is, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take the word from other people, namely atheists that I've drawn from. For example, Bertrand Russell, uh, who is considered to be one of the chief advocates of atheism, at least during his, his life, he wrote that the universe as he understood it is purposeless and it's void of meaning. The entire sum of the human endeavor is, quote, destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. Or so he said in 1903 in his famous free man's worship. Let me go a little bit more modern. Uh, there's a guy named Richard Dawkins, and along with uh, three other atheists, they're known as the four horsemen of atheism. Daniel Dennett is one of the others. Christopher Hitchens was one, but he's already passed away. And then another guy named Sam Harris. Richard Dawkins, back in 1995, wrote a book called The River Out of Eden. And there he said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind and pitiless indifference. So when you look, for example, at events that are going on in the world, maybe you could look back historically and talk about the genocide in Darfur. Or maybe you could go back even a little bit further and go back into the Nazi atrocities during World War II. You could pick something else. What that would mean if we take Richard Dawkins seriously is that there was nothing morally wrong about committing genocide in Darfur, nor was there anything morally wrong with the Nazi Holocaust in World War II. Because if you're the result of a blind process that does not have a goal and it does not have value, then basically what you see happening here are events. Now, maybe you don't like them, and in fact, that's fine if you don't like them. But what it doesn't mean is that the world has gone wrong. What I found interesting about Dawkins is he's really inconsistent on this because later he writes a book called The God Delusion. And in The God Delusion, one of the things that he wants to, to point out is that look at all of the evil that has come as a result of religious belief. And I thought, well, I have a problem with that because if what you're saying is true and that God doesn't exist, then all that we really have are people doing things. They're not evil and they're actually not good and you already told me that in your book, River Out of Eden in 1995, right? You just have people believing that God exists and God doesn't exist, doing things that you're now calling evil when before you said evil didn't exist. You can't actually have it both ways. But he at least admits it. And I'll say this, based on his worldview, if it's true, I think he's right. If God doesn't exist, then you can't give an account for these things. There's another one, another guy named William Provine. And he was writing back in 1994, he wrote a, a work on Darwinism uh, called Darwinism, Science or Naturalistic Philosophy. And he was asked this same question. And well, if God doesn't exist, then I mean, what's it all about, man? And he said, well, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views, he said. There are no gods, there are no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Well, at least he admits it. And if he weren't done, there was a gentleman at uh, Duke University uh, named Alec Ro Alex Rosenberg. He actually heads up the, the department, or headed up the Department of Philosophy at Duke. And he wrote a book some years ago called The Atheist's Guide to, um, the, uh, to Reality. And he was asked the same question, or asking the same question in that book. 
which was this. What's the purpose of the universe? And I'm just quoting it. There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It's full, and his answer was, it's full of sound and fury, and it signifies nothing. Well, Rosenberg argues that when a scientifically informed atheist, what he says is, if you really are that way, you should be a nihilist. And what he means by a nihilist is simply this. Nihilism means nil, means nothing. What's it all about? And the answer is nothing. That's what it's all about. Even the sentences in the book that he was writing, he said, had no meaning. And I was like, then why did you write them? But he said it, not me. Now, I could give you more. I could give you more, but I'm not. I just want you to know that examples of those statements, they can be multiplied. People that have sat down and given some serious thought to what their worldview means have come to these conclusions, and some of them have accepted it. They've accepted it. So it's fair to say that theists and atheists, we tend to agree on something, though. And when I'm talking with my friends that are are atheists, I typically start with the places that we agree. And here's a place that we agree. If there's no God, then human life has no objective meaning. It just isn't there. So when I ask them, okay, so what, how would you want to understand what you do? Right? So when you're going to be an advocate for something, why do it? And the answer they usually give is because that gives meaning to me. It's not meaningful in any objective sense or any ultimate sense. It's just something that gives me purpose, and so I invest in it. And that's the other option. You know, they don't have the possibility for the meaning from what you call without, so they choose to talk about meaning that they have from within. So they'll concede it. If there's no God, then the universe and human life, no objective meaning. But then they back up and say, but good news, that doesn't mean that the conversation is over, and they'll suggest that we're able to give our lives meaning. There's a story that actually makes this somewhat um, famous, going back, it's called the myth of Sisyphus. You might remember the story of Sisyphus who was condemned by the gods to push a rock up a hill, only to have the rock come back down the hill. And then Sisyphus had to push the rock back up the hill and basically was condemned to do this for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds to me like not a good way of living, right? But that was Sisyphus's life. Some have looked at the myth of Sisyphus and you go, but how do you take something that's as meaningless as pushing a rock, which is what life would basically be, if God doesn't exist, and say that's gonna give your life meaning. And the answer that's often given is, is you have to act as if it does, even though in your heart you know it doesn't. Even in your mind you know it doesn't. You just accept it. Since there's nothing outside of us that could ascribe meaning to our lives, any meaning has to come from within you, either as individuals, like you create your own meaning, or a society, we get together and we decide what's gonna be meaningful. Some of you know the famous movie maker Stanley Kubrick. He said the very meaninglessness of life forces man to create his own meaning. Hmm. So maybe we find the atheist saying something like this. Well, I've chosen to commit my life to discovering a cure for cancer or a cure for COVID. <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, you pick it, it doesn't matter. I've, just, I've decided to commit my life to that. And you know what? It's my personal decision. It's just the way that I'm going to go. Rather than the decree of some deity who's telling me the way that my life ought to go. And that's what gives my life meaning and purpose. My life does indeed have a goal. A goal that I determined for myself. My life is significant because I make it significant. It's valuable because I value it myself. And that, my friends, is usually the way that they go. Now the question then is, is that a good way to go? And on the face of it, and as I sit down with them, or even in other groups where we're actually dialoguing about it, some people think, actually that does make some sense. It's even attractive. Because then I'm the one that forges my own destiny, and as a result, uh, I'm the one that's ultimately responsible, rather than this external thing that's kind of imposing a meaning on me. Why couldn't we just make our lives meaningful by choosing to live certain ways or embracing certain worthy goals? And the problem is that there are actually two concerns, and I'll give those to you tonight. In the first place, 
it suffers from what's called the problem of arbitrariness. The problem of arbitrariness. So if the meaning of life is subjectively determined, like you're just determining it for yourself, then anything could become the meaning of life, depending on one's personal preferences and predilections, literally anything at all. I mean, you know what Hitler's meaning of life was, right? I mean, he had a plan for it. By the way, he was doing a pretty good job of it, right? So who, who are we? Once he established his own goals to say, man, you just shouldn't have picked those. Sitting around all day, eating donuts, playing video games could also be somebody else's meaningful life. A suicidal person would be entitled to make the meaningful life the destruction of their own life. Or how about this? Somebody that likes to murder people could actually just do the same. What is it that makes your life meaningful? Uh, murder. Now, all of you are probably sitting there and saying, I don't think that's a good way to go. But when you do that, you're actually agreeing with me that when we say that we determine what is meaningful or valuable, then we've also committed ourselves to the point that we can't object when somebody says this, this is what's valuable and meaningful to me. It's the problem of arbitrariness. I could give you other examples, but you get the idea. Um, the second problem is what James Anderson calls the bootstrapping problem. The second problem to creating your own meaning, he calls the bootstrapping problem. So the first is it's arbitrary. The second is you bootstrap. Here's the basic idea here. Uh, this is what's faced by any system that's expected to initiate and to sustain itself without any external assistance like God, right? Nothing. So just as it's impossible for you to lift yourself off the floor by your own bootstraps, you can't do that. So it seems impossible for you to confer meaning onto your own life if your life lacks meaning from the outset. You can't just make it up. And here's why. If your life is meaningless to begin with, how could any of your choices be meaningful or meaning creating? It doesn't make any sense. How could meaningful choices arise out of a meaningless life? It doesn't make any sense. Can you get things off the ground by simply saying that you believe that your choices are meaningful? And the answer is, no, you can't. Because it wouldn't be meaningful in any ultimate sense. Now, so why does this question even matter? As I visit with, with my atheist and skeptical friends, one of the things that we do agree is that their lives are meaningful though. We do. But I want to talk about that for just a second. If you hold everything that I've been talking about tonight kind of in, in your hand, because when I visit with them, they'll say, but I do have a meaningful life. And I say, I agree with you. I think you do. But it's not because of your atheism. It's in spite of it. And that's the difference. Um, it's almost like I don't have to know who invented the lawnmower to use it. In fact, I, I could be agnostic about that. You see what I'm getting at? I don't have any belief. Right now, I actually don't have any belief about who invented the lawnmower. But you know what I could go home and do? I could go mow my yard. And the reason that I bring that up is because the confusion happens on the level of what is called metaphysics and epistemology. So we're talking about what is it that grounds meaning and value in life. It's a part of the furniture of the universe, so to speak. Not what do you believe grounds meaning and value in life. And that's the confusion. I mean, my reply is usually something like this. I actually don't deny for a moment that your life is meaningful. But it's meaningful because God has infused creation with significance and purpose and value. And even though you don't believe in God, it's still a part of the universe that you're inhabiting. Just like I can use a lawnmower even if I don't know who it was that created it. Here's another way of understanding it. Um, a person can deny the existence of God, still have a meaningful life, but this fact no more proves that a life can have meaning without God than a person who denies the existence of oxygen but and still enjoys good health would prove that you uh, can be a healthy person without it. It just doesn't work like that. It only proves that people can hold beliefs at odds with reality. But we all already knew that. And all of us actually do that at times. 
So why is this topic important? Is because again, it's inescapable. When you start thinking about decisions that you make, who do I marry? What's my vocation? What's going to be my contribution to, well, people's goodness and well-being? All of us ask those questions because at its heart, we're getting to how are we spending our time because we realize our time is precious and our time is limited and our time is important. But even though I believe in God, and specifically I'm talking a Christian belief in God, I don't think that my life has, me- has meaning simply because there's eternity in the wake. I, I don't think it's that. You know, well, why is life meaningful? Well, because there's this forever, right? I, I think it's because God has conferred it on his creation itself. The creation that I'm participating in, sometimes well and sometimes not so well. So we all have this question, right? How do we use our time? And we know that we want to connect to something that really is going to make a difference. So some closing words that I have for my skeptical friends as I was sitting in Starbucks a couple of weeks ago with one of them. And it was a really great conversation because I just said, okay, let's put the cards on the table. What's really keeping you from being a Christian? And I'm gonna leave that part of the conversation between the two of us. I just wanna do that. But if you believe that your life has meaning, if you sense that it must have a meaning, then you're absolutely right. It actually does. But the meaning doesn't come from within you. And the second that you hear a person say, I create my meaning, but then they're condemning another person for what it is that they're choosing, you know that they've stepped away. And they think, nope, actually there is something bigger here. And our beliefs betray us right at that moment. So what I've encouraged my skeptical friends is to chase this one down the road quite a bit. See what it is that they're committing themselves to. I mean, why be an advocate uh, for an oppressed people group when frankly you could go have fun? Is one of those lives better than the other? And based on where they're starting from, the answer is no, it's actually just different. And with that, as I tell them, which would give you good reasons for thinking God exists. Now, what I wanna do is uh, give a little bit of time. We actually have a mic that's right here, and maybe you have a question. It can be related to this. I'm happy to answer it. Uh, You feel free to ask it. Um, We think that uh, this dialogue is important. The questions that we're talking about are important, and so I'll leave it up to you. If anybody has a question, it can come specifically about the Christian worldview. That's perfectly fine with me. I'm happy to answer it. If not, I actually have a couple of other things that I'll add on here in just a second, but I wanted to give you a little bit of time to ask some questions. So the mic is open. Anybody that wants to take it, it is right there. And it can also be a clarifying question as well. Like I confused you at some point. Happy to make that clear. But the mic is yours. Anybody? So what would you say to a skeptic who says, well, any society that sets up parameters which benefit a sentient species like ours and affords them uh, prosperity, they then can determine their own purpose. So, so just so I'm making sure that I understand the question properly, it's not what does an indiv- not an individual that, that creates meaning for their life, but instead it's a society. Yeah, yeah. That's me. Okay, so the catch there is, is you still run into the same problems, right? Let me, so I gave the example, I gave the example of, of the Nazis in World War II, right? And this is the problem because when you talk about meaning or you're talking about value, Value is, is connected not just to the meaning of life, but also the moral meaning of life. We, we have some limits, moral limits on the things that we choose. But what if I said, well, you know, if you go back into Germany, most, a lot of the Germans were perfectly fine with the plans that Hitler had. The question then becomes, well, then who are we as citizens of the United States to actually condemn the Germans for the course that they've charted out for themselves? at least in any objective sense. So if you say that these values are derived, so to speak, socially, like as a group, we kind of all rubbed heads together and we said, this is what we're going to pursue. 
You still have the problem of arbitrariness. Is what you're pursuing moral or not? And then again, if you look, part, part of the problem with arbitrariness is if you have a person individually saying this is what gives meaning to my life, you also have a problem condemning people like Ted Bundy. Right? I mean, he said that what he was doing gave his life meaning when he was raping and murdering women. And, and in fact, he said, why would we say that, that, that this woman's life is more meaningful to her than a hog's life is to a hog for those of you that are eating meat or anything for that matter? You get the idea? And it's the same when you go on the social level as well. It's still just as arbitrary as when you deal with it on the individual level. I don't know if that answered your question at least a little bit. But that's a pretty standard response because that's typically the second move. Well, we'll determine what the meaning is. Did you also know this? I know the answer is yes, you do. But did you know that a lot of us could be wrong, <laughs> right? I mean, simply because a lot of us sat down and we rubbed heads together didn't mean that we got it right. It just means we agreed on something. Well, what if we agreed on was actually morally atrocious, but off we go, right? It's something to think about. Anybody else? It's a good question. Anybody else have a question? So you said that um, <clears throat> we Christians are now in the minority, you know, for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. um, for the rest of uh, society, are they um, looking at their view as either uh, having subjective or objective influences, I mean, as a whole? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the, the question goes back to, at least, at least based on the research, we're living in a time where for the first time we're the minority, that is people that believe in God. Um, now, on the one hand, I, I'm not sure what to make of the study, and, and here's why I say that, uh, is <laughs> how, how many people were affiliated with a church that actually weren't believers in, in God? And I think that for a longer time than we'd like to admit, that number is higher than we would, we would like to say. Um, it was more of just kind of what you did as a flow of life, but did it impact the way that you live? Not really, I just kind of went, that's where my people were. So I'm not sure what to do with it on, on that level. But I also wanna take your question seriously, which is where do people go with it, you know? And the answer is most, some of this is anecdotal to be fair, uh, because I've gone around a lot of universities, I've talked with a lot of university students over the years, and here's what I'm finding. The subjective meaning approach is the way that they like to go. It's just the way that they like to go. And part of it is, is they have this strong sense of, because now I'm in control of my own destiny, I'm in control of my own future, and that also means that I have to live with the consequences of the choices that I make, and I'll accept that. That's the majority of, of what I hear. Uh, a lot of what we, we do vocationally is something that I just enjoy doing it, and it's something that I'm gonna wake up job-wise, and does it fulfill any bigger or greater purpose? And the answer is no, it's just something that I like to do, and it gives me a paycheck to sustain some of my other hobbies, or maybe my wife and children, or whatever the case may be. That's the lion's share of what I hear when I'm out there, and I'm just sitting down with people on campuses. And by the way, not just in the United States. This is also true when I've gone over into Budapest, which is largely an unbelieving place. Uh, they, most of them don't believe in God, but they also were behind the Iron Curtain for a bunch of decades too, so no surprise there. They typically take the approach of, this is the only life that I've got, and so I'm gonna fill it up with things that I enjoy. But then I give them this test, and I totally borrowed it, right? I don't care that I'm, I'm original, uh, but I tease people with this. There was a guy from Harvard and his name was Robert Nozick. This was some years ago. And Robert Nozick asked this question. He said, I want you to imagine that there is this experience machine, right? And you can be basically hooked up to this machine and every single thing that you would experience would be a pleasurable experience for you. All right, y'all with me so far? Are you with him, since he's the one that made it up? Some call it the pleasure machine experience, some call it just the experience machine. But every single thing that you would experience would be a pleasurable experience for you. Y'all with me so far? 
So when I'm having these conversations, whether it's overseas or it's been here in the States, I've gone with the experience machine. Hey, well, let me ask you a question. I mean, if everything really is about, about your pleasure and things that are contributing to your pleasure, would you hook up to the machine? Even though, by the way, now, by the way, just so you know, once you hook up, you can't just dart out, all right, because that's cheating. You have, to make, you have to make a choice. How many people would actually hook up to the, the pleasure machine or the experience machine? Here's what's interesting. Even though, on the one hand, the people are saying that life is ultimately about pleasure, nobody was hooking up to the machine. Like, nobody. They've even gone into jails and done the exact same questions to people in jails and asked them, how many of you would be hooking up to the pleasure machine or the experience machine? And the answer was hardly any. And the reason that they gave for it is something that to me is pretty interesting. The reason that they gave is because it's better to have a real experience than a simulated one. All that was going to do was to simulate an experience. But then I pushed back a little bit because, well, that's my job. And I asked this question, but you're the one that just said that really what you want your life to be about is, is pleasure. So why wouldn't you hook yourself up to what is going to produce that, whether it's fake or real? And that's when they couldn't give an answer, except to say this. Well, then maybe there's more to life than pleasure. And I agree. I agree. It's better to be connected to reality, even if there's those choppy and broken moments, than to have a purely simulated life. But the reason that I give you the Robert Nozick story is because what it proves is, and I'm just, I'm just the guy asking the question to people, how many of you would hook up, right? And nobody does. The reason that I ask the question is because it teases out of us a very deep intuition that there really is more to life than what I'm saying here. And it kind of draws it out. That's why I like the example. I think it's a great one. I hope that that answers your question a little bit. But again, anecdotally, just my experience talking to, to university students in, in Europe and even throughout the United States, including NC State, University of North Carolina, Duke, when I was living up, I was living up in North Carolina, A&M, which is, is my place, but talking to students over there, it, it's really interesting to kind of tease out people's intuitions and then for them to kind of rub up against it and say, I don't know that I'm being consistent here. Why wouldn't I hook up? Why not? And it's because the answer is, there's more to life than your pleasure in life. There's more to it. It's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Anybody else? Oh, yep, we got somebody else coming. Go ahead. What a gentleman. Ladies first. What a guy. I don't stand in front of a mic and talk, guys. I just don't. I talk That's a okay. lot. I just don't do it in front of a mic in front of people like this. But before most of you guys were here, we were over there at the cookies and coffee and having that conversation about that little boy, the three-year-old boy that was lost for five days. And I said, and someone felt led to look on his property and he found him. And anyway, then I hear that he was at a Bible study the night before or something and he felt God talking to him, but that didn't come out in the news. Mm -hmm. So we, Richard says, well, we're in the min minority, right. okay? How do you fight what you're looking at TV and they don't have proper families on TV or um, examples on how to live on TV on a, a lot of uh, stations and stuff right. in certain papers and stuff, you know? Yeah. 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 And they're not here tonight right. to hear yeah. another view, yeah. you know. Yeah. So. Well, one is that you keep the conversation going. Um, listen, a, a lot of what I do and the way that I spend my time, and I break away from this building so that I can go and talk with people that don't think the way I think. Um, that, that came with time. Uh, what, what I think most of them wanted to know is that I actually just cared about them first. That was what most of them wanted, wanted to know. Uh, only later when they're like, oh, you have a PhD in philosophy, they're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and then the conversations kind of take, you know, take off. Um, but for some, they weren't talking to me for a year. 
It was very peripheral. And then the next thing you know, the Lord gives me some of the best friends with people that don't see the world the same way that I, that I see it. And I'm bringing that up basically to make a point. And it's, it's a point that's specifically charged to the church. Uh, we were told to go. We were not told to sit here and stay. We were told to go to the world. We were not told to expect the world to come to us. And so that's what I do. I just kind of break away in the middle of the day and I go and I have some of these conversations. Sometimes it's, I just wanna make sure that your mom's doing okay. I know that she hasn't been well because I actually love these people. But sometimes it's we sit down and we're thinking about some of the deeper things because we need to, right? Socrates was called the gadfly of Athens. Do you know what a gadfly is? It's a fly that actually will bite a horse and really provoke it, right? It agitates it. We need to be asking the questions that will provoke people. We don't need to be as comfortable as we are. And the majority of what people in the West are thinking, by the way, right now, is they don't care. Now I'm sitting there thinking, how can you not care whether or not God exists? Even if, even if you're an atheist, my atheist friends care. They're trying to figure most of this out. They just don't believe that God exists. But how you don't care, I'm sitting there going, how would you not care about that? Well, let's think about the church for a second. Um, and, and I'm not pointing any, any individual out at, at here at this church or at other churches. I'm just speaking in, in broad strokes. What percentage of people that are Christians are actually sharing Jesus with somebody that isn't a Christian? That number is staggeringly low. It's incredibly low. So on the one hand, so I'm just taking it on our side. On the one hand, this is the most important thing that you can ever consider, and I'm never gonna go talk to you about it. That's where we find ourselves, at least in the West, meaning in Europe, and in the United States. There are other parts of the world, by the way, Christianity is absolutely blowing up. It's blowing up, China included, included. But if you talk to the average Christian, when is the last time that you had a meaningful conversation about what we consider to be the most important belief that you could have? Most Christians have to be honest and say, I don't have those. And then I think of Paul. Well, how can they believe if they don't hear? And he asked that question for a reason. They can't. So does that, but does that compel you enough to do something about it? And the answer for most Christians is, most important belief that we could ever have, but I'm not gonna care enough to do something about it. That just doesn't settle well with me. And so what I would say is, is before I say anything about people that are indifferent, I'm like, no, I'm looking at the indifference of the church too. Because we're not getting out and doing our job. And that part's on us. That's on us. So when, if we take the study seriously and we go, okay, so we're in the minority for the first time in the history of our country. Have you ever wondered why we are? Not just that we are, but why we are? And I think the answer to that is that you have a lot of Christians that aren't wondering what the right thing to do is. It's just we're busy doing other things that make us basically no different from people that don't believe in God at all. So basically an atheistic Christian, functionally atheist. It makes no difference to my life whatsoever. I'm not going to do anything in terms of, you know, during the week, having an intentional relationship with somebody. And then the question to me becomes, well, that probably explains how we got here. So again, I'm bringing that up not to beat anybody up in here because I don't know what you do Monday through Saturday. But what I can say is this, if you really do believe you're a Christian, if you really do believe this is the most important thing, then it's like the example that I gave before. Hey, we're living in the end days. I mean, our days are numbered. Really, what'd you do yesterday? Ah, uh, kind of the same. Don't you think yesterday would have been different if you really believed it? But that said, and to be fair, sometimes it's not about information. You know, I, I don't think anybody in the room tonight is sitting there wondering, hey, what does smoking do to you? Now, we've got the information there. And in fact, most of the smokers that I know know all the information about lung cancer, right? It's just they're choosing to smoke. Uh, tonight, I, I, I'm trying to say something now about one, why I think you have good reasons for thinking God exists and it's in, some of the, it's in the most important place with your life. Uh, well, I wanted to speak to that. But I also wanted to speak to those that believe that God exists 
and say, functionally, is your life meaningless? <laughs> not, not is there any deep meaning and significance and value to life? There is. But what are you doing with it? So I'm, I'm not going to complain about whether or not we're the minority in the country because, well, complaining isn't going to change that. It's just not. But you know what will? Each part of the church doing what the church was meant to do. That will change things. So for that, if you're here and you're a believer, let me just encourage you this. Be faithful. You know, just be faithful. And after that, leave it to the Lord. It's what I do. It's what I do. You had a great question. Thanks for asking it. We should care more, shouldn't we? We just should. All right, I know you had a question, and this is the one that, based on the time, we'll end the night on. Did you want to ask it? I can go with my stuff? Okay. All right. Really, it's just a couple of other things, and we'll, we'll end it tonight. Um, did you know that there are actually some places that I agree with, with my atheist friends on? Is happiness a part of what gives life meaning? And the answer is, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Is pleasure a part of what gives life meaning and value? And the answer is, sure. Absolutely. The reason that I was speaking to, to what I was speaking to tonight is because I actually agree with a guy kind of a long time ago named Aristotle, that when he talked about happiness, he said, but we have to understand happiness in a very specific way. And it's when your life is ordered toward a goal that your life has. And that life comes from, out, that, that goal comes from outside of you. It comes from outside of you. Humans, you know, just as I said, a refrigerator has a telos, it has an end or a goal or a purpose, and that's to keep your food cold. Did you know that human beings also have an end, a goal, or a purpose? And that's why I began it the way that I did, and it's the way that I'm going to end it. That even though happiness is good, our happiness has to be ordered to a proper end or goal. Even though pleasure is good, it has to be ordered to a proper end or goal. And the chief end of man is not just happiness and pleasure, it's to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. It's what gives all of those other things. It's kind of the umbrella under which all of those other things reside. And that story, I think, is best told by the existence of God. I hope that you found tonight helpful. What I would encourage you to do, my friends, is uh, keep your eyes open to when we're going to have the next Consider This. It won't be me. We're going to be having a guest speaker, probably up on the big screen, but live, and so that you can interact with them and you have a chance to pick their brains. hope tonight's been good, and I hope you have a great week. We'll see you soon. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. For more information about Consider This, visit us at considerthiswbc.com.